Morning. Okay, um, we are in, still in the book of Matthew. Like I said, we're going to be here for a long, long time. Uh, but pretty cool, last week we got to start a new series because we're breaking this book down into series so that we can more adequately cover all the subject matter. Uh, and last week, Pastor Nate started us off in our new series called Blind Faith. And I'm really excited about this series because there are so many cool things we're going to learn uh, in these next few weeks or few months, depending on how long-winded we get. Uh, but anyway, we're going to continue on in that. And last week, Pastor Nathan discussed the triumphal entry. Now, this week we're going to discuss something a little different because this is kind of a side of Jesus you don't see a lot, what we're going to discuss today. Okay, because we're going to discuss when he cleansed the temple. Because when he did that, he really revealed his identity and his authority, right? Because, see, the Jews had corrupted the temple. I mean, it was just amazing to see how far it had fallen from what God's design was. Because the, the temple was actually designed to point to our need for a Savior. Now, there was a lot of flaws in the temple, but they were supposed to be there. They were supposed to show that it's impossible for this system to work, right? But what happened was, instead of pointing to a Savior, the Jews had corrupted it so bad that people didn't even see that image anymore. They didn't see the God among men image anymore. Uh, what they saw was, was greed, and what they saw was the wickedness of the Jewish uh, priests' hearts and of the, of the Jewish leaders' hearts. So it was just so corrupted, and so uh, Jesus said, I have to put a stop to this. Right? And the way he does this will kind of shock you. Uh, the title of today's message, contrary to popular belief, uh, is Shake Things Up. Because sometimes Jesus has to shake things up in our lives to make us see how far we've fallen. And that's what he's going to do here. Now I want you to remember, once again, just before this, he made his triumphal entry. And people are saying, Hosanna in the highest, and, and throwing palm leaves in front of him. And I mean, it was just, uh, you know, like a high point, right? This is like, like the pinnacle here for him. Okay, and then this is what he does. Okay, let's take a look at this. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of money, uh, of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now, before, before we look at why Jesus did this, let's take a look at the layout of the temple. Okay, because like I said, there were a lot of imperfections that were supposed to be there. Uh, and I think it'll kind of shock you the way it was set up because lots and lots of people, different people, not just Jews, people who are interested in finding the one true God, the Gentiles were also coming to this temple to worship. Right, but, but it was really segregated. Not everyone was treated equally. Okay, because here's what the temple was laid out like. It was like a big rectangle. Okay, and in the dead center of it was the Holy of Holies. Right, and this is where the presence of God would come and the high priest would go in. Okay, so it was sectioned into five different sections. Okay, five different sections. And, and when you see how it's laid out, it's laid out in a way that, that actually segregates people. And that's not what, what God has for us, but it, like I said, this was an imperfect setup. I mean, this wasn't supposed to be the final solution, the temple and the system. It was supposed to point to the final solution, which is Jesus. So let's take a look at these five areas and realize that outside of the rectangle, all the way to the middle, are those areas, and it goes by who they see as the most important. Okay, so on the outskirts, right, this was called the court of the Gentiles, or the non-Jews. And that's as far as you could go if you were not a natural Jew. That's as far as you could go, right? And, and this was where the money changers and the animal dealers, if you will, hung out, the animal salesmen, uh, hung out. It was in the court of the Gentiles. 
Now, realize this was supposed to be a place where people who didn't know the true God could discover the true God. This was the first impression of people who are coming up from different nations and have heard about the power of God and, and want to experience that. And instead, they find this place that's just a place of business and all this deception going on and all this greed is abounding. This is what the Gentiles found when they came because they were the farthest from the center, from the Holy of Holies. The Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles was on the outside. Now, the second farthest was the court of the women. I didn't write it, okay? And they were more important to, than the Gentiles. I mean, that's something, right? But that was as important as it got. So the only women could be in that section. That was where the Jewish women were, right? And then there was the court of Israel, and this was where the Jewish men went. So they were even closer yet to the Holy of Holies. And then there was the court of the priests, which was the last court before the Holy of Holies. And the priests would accept and offer sacrifices in the court of the priests. And then the fifth section, obviously, was the Holy of Holies, or the holy place. And this is where the presence of God would appear. And this, this was a place so holy that only the high priest could enter into this, this place. And they had to make sure that everything was right in their life before they went into that. There's even uh, writings from some of the Jewish authors that said that they would, they would tie a rope around a high priest's ankle and put a bell on it. <laughs> so that just in case he didn't purify his life enough, when they heard the bell stop ringing, they'd drag him out, they figure he died in the presence of God. I mean, that was legit. That's what they did. Because they were like, well, just in case you didn't get everything taken care of, you know, we can't go in there to retrieve you. So they tied a rope around their ankle and, and had a bell on them so they could hear them moving around. And if an hour went around without them hearing them moving, they're thinking, well, he must have had sin in his life, and they drug him out. I mean, this, is, this was the setup, right? Now, and I know it seems structured, but it was actually just a, a spiritual train wreck. It had just become crazy, right? It had become a place of religious corruption and commerce, and that's, that's really what it was. But what's really sad is that the priests actually were so corrupted that they were in on some of this greedy stuff that was going on. See, here's what would happen. The priest would only accept specific sacrifices. Right? Now, remember, people are traveling from long distances to come. It wasn't feasible for them to always bring the best of their flock, like the law commanded, so they would have to come into town and buy a sacrifice. Right? And conveniently, exactly what they needed was sold in the court of the Gentiles so they could buy their sacrifice. And the priests made sure those specific sacrifices were there, right? And that some Jewish historians actually said they charged over 10 times the amount that animal was actually worth to buy it for sacrifice. Over 10 times the amount, right? And so, I mean, this was just a scam. And then they had money changers. See, foreign people would have to come in and exchange their money into the only currency that the Jews would accept, right? And so they had money changers come in. And you talk about a racket. I mean, some people say, if you read a lot, of the, a lot of the history on it, they say, well, there's reasons they didn't accept foreign currency. You know, first of all, they couldn't, they couldn't be sure of the quality and purity of the silver they brought in in their money. And, you know, also some of those coins had idol gods' images on them. So, you know, that's why they couldn't accept them. I don't, I don't believe that. I think the reason they couldn't accept it is because this was a great opportunity to rip somebody off a different way. Because they would conveniently change your foreign money into the Jewish currency— at a small cost of 25% to exchange your money. 25%. So this, 
this whole thing was a scam. It had just lost its focus, and I think it's safe to say it was extremely unclean. So this is the situation Jesus is walking into. So his first order of business was to cleanse this, this corrupted temple. Now, it's important that you understand this isn't the first time he did that. Okay, at the beginning of his ministry, in John chapter 2, it tells us he did the same thing. Look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the, of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves uh, and money changers seated at their tables. And he made just scourge, and he made a scourge of cords, this is basically a whip, uh, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Uh, and to those who were selling doves, he said, take, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he went in to cleanse this temple. So obviously the first cleansing didn't take, right? Because they went right back to what they were doing before. So at the beginning and the end, he did the same thing. Now I want to deal with something here. He did make a whip. Now, a lot of people try to make Jesus like, like, you know, Vin Diesel here. Like he's got this whip and he's, you know, horse whipping people and, and running them out and hurting people. And just, this isn't what it was for. He made this whip because he was running animals out of there. And the whip was to shoo the animals out, not to hit people with. How many people really believe that Jesus would take a whip to people? Seriously? I mean, that's not what was happening. He made that scourge or that... That, that whip so he could drive the animals out uh, after he'd overturned those tables. Now, I think it's funny, back in Matthew, in the second account of this, he actually quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah, two of the most highly regarded prophets, right after he does this. Now, take a look at this. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 7. It says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called what? house of prayer thank you all five of you uh, my house will be called what a house of prayer for all the peoples right now jeremiah he also quoted him jeremiah seven eleven. has this house which is called by my name become what a den, a den of robbers in your sight behold i even i have seen it declares the lord so i mean it was he wanted to make a very clear statement listen you know what you're doing is wrong you know this is not supposed to be a place where you take advantage of people. You know this is supposed to be a holy place where people can feel the presence of God, can discover the presence of God, and look what you've made it into. So, I mean, I think it's, you can see why he was so angry. I mean, he comes in and people are being fleeced. I mean, just being robbed when they come into the temple of God. So he does something that's really uncharacteristic. He flips over the tables. Now, there's no way to, to make that light. I mean, it, it is what it is. He came in, and it made him upset, and he flipped over their tables, and money went everywhere, and he's telling them, get out. I mean, he threw them out. He bum-rushed them. Make no mistake. He threw them out because he was upset at what they had done here. Now, I wanna, before I move on, so many people misuse this. Have you ever heard people use this for, like, churches having raffles and things like that? Oh, you're making, yeah, that's not what this is talking about. And um, hopefully most people here are more intelligent than that. But every time we try to do a fundraiser, people say, oh, Jesus is going to come and overturn the table. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I think you're stretching a little bit. That's not what he was doing. He was upset because they had taken a holy place and made it a place of commerce. Right? He just made it a place of commerce. Now, basically, this is his way of saying, maybe it didn't take last time, so I'll do it again. Pay attention to me. He flips everything over. Now I have your attention. You are making what's supposed to be a house of prayer a den of thieves. 
Do you hear me now? He flips everything over, puts it right in their face. Now, I think it's funny. Have you ever, have you ever felt like Jesus kind of turns the tables over in your life? Anybody ever felt that way? Anybody ever feel like Jesus had to shake things up a little bit in your life to get your attention? Now, I, I know it's happened to me many times in my life, and, and when he does it, it's, it's unmistakable. You know what he's doing. He's shaking things up to get your attention, and he'll do it in your marriages. Anybody ever had that happen where you're struggling in your marriage, and then all of a sudden things just fall, start falling apart because God's saying, listen, everything that's pulling you away from your spouse, I want you to stop focusing on that. Look at me. I brought you two together. It'll happen in our marriages. It happens in our finances, in our businesses. There's so many different ways he does this. But he will overturn the tables in our lives if we find ourselves not focused on him anymore. doesn't matter what it is with a relationship, anything. And what he's doing is he's overturning the tables that we've set up, that we've allowed. This is the things we've allowed in our life that distract us from God, things we know we shouldn't have there. And he says, I'm going to have to turn these over to get your attention. And, you know, the best example I, could, I can give you is when, when I had my business years ago. I was trying to run a business at two locations and be a full-time pastor. And, and my thinking was, and you can imagine the enemy whispering in my ear telling me this was possible. My, my, what I was thinking was, you know, I'll build these up. And then when the church is able to afford, you know, to pay me full-time, I'll sell them and have a decent nest egg. <laughs> like he was going to let that happen. You know what I mean? And I was, I mean, I don't sleep anyway. I mean, I'm like the undead. I don't sleep. But it was really bad at this time. I was, my attention was so divided, and so he just flipped the tables over in my life. Everything fell apart in ways I can't even explain or express. Everything fell apart, and every attempt I made to save my business, he shut the door in my face. And finally, one day, I just had to get down on my knees and say, God, I'm starting to think you don't want me to do this. You know? And he's like, really? You're, you're brilliant. I've been flipping tables over for you for two years. When are you going to pay attention to me? And when I finally, I remember that day I, I, I prayed. And for those of you who know me, I'm a germ freak, right? I'm not like Howard Hughes or anything, but I'm a germ freak, okay? And I literally was so broken at this one point, everything was falling apart around me, that I went into a bathroom and got on my knees and prayed. Anybody that knows me knows I was as sincere as it got for me to get down there in a bathroom, the nastiest place on earth. Right? And I, I said, God, I don't care what I have to lose. I just want to follow you. I just want to preach your gospel. I, I just want this church to succeed. So take what you want to take. And from that moment on, everything started changing for me. But it took two years of him turning tables over in my life to get my attention about that. Now, you know what's funny is most of you, if you think really hard, probably know what tables you're setting up in your life right now. Things that are slowly pulling you away from God. And the thing in your mind that you're trying to justify right now, that immediately you're saying, oh, he doesn't know. I, he's probably thinking about this. But he doesn't know I have to do it. Th that thing that you're trying to justify, that's probably the thing I'm talking about. That's probably the thing that he may have to overturn the tables in. We always have these things we just set up. Look at your life. What is taking your attention off God? Because if you don't turn back and get your priorities right, he's going to shake things up. And he'll do what he has to do because his number one priority is to have you in close fellowship with him. That's his number one priority. And he'll do what he has to do to get you there. And if he overturns your tables and, and you refuse to listen, hey, at least now you have no excuse. 
But do you know what I mean? Has anyone been there where you just, just everything starts going wrong in an area? Raise your hand if you've been there. The rest of you have a great life. But I'm just saying, you can't deny when it's happening, and I think that's what was going on here. Now, as you can imagine, this didn't make the Jews very happy. All right? They were upset when they saw this. He overturned the tables. He got their attention. More importantly, everybody that was coming there to worship probably heard this. So imagine the pride probably got stung a little bit because he's saying, what have you done here? The Jewish priests are looking at him. He says, what, what have you done here? Do you know what you're doing? Really selling sacrifices? Ripping people off with money? What have you, you have literally mocked the house of God. So imagine how angry this probably made him, right? And what happens next just kind of adds fuel to the fire. Look at this, Matthew 21, 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now think about it. They're just thinking to themselves, who do you think you are? To come into our temple, overturn our system, and preach at us, who do you think you are? Then all of a sudden the blind and the lame start coming to him and he starts healing them. So imagine how upset that made him. Because what happened at that time was the blind and the lame used to hang out outside of the gates of the temple because they were trying to get alms from people. They figured, well, they just went to church. This is probably the best time to hit them up, right? This is probably the best time to get a donation. So that's where they hung out. So there was uh, the blind and the lame, or the blind and, and Jeremy outside. No, <laughs> just kidding. But hanging out outside the temple, right? Now, here's the thing. They probably didn't receive a lot of mercy from the Jews when they hung out there because the Jews looked at someone who had a disability they looked at them as if they were cursed by God. I mean, can you imagine? If somebody couldn't see or couldn't walk or couldn't hear, they said, well, there's some sin in their life. It's their fault. They're cursed of God. That's the way they felt. We even saw that a little bit with the disciples. If you look at John chapter 9, it says, as he passed by, speaking of Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, uh, this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So as you see, Jesus didn't see them as cursed. He saw them as people with a great opportunity to show the power of God. So he immediately heals these people. I think this is amazing because every time you turn around in the scriptures, you see how Jesus took an almost hopeless situation and made it better. Yet, when we have difficult situations, why is he one of the last ones we go to? Have you ever noticed that? Why is it that every time we see all these amazing stories and we love to read them, we love to, to hear people preach about them, we love to sing songs about them, how he changes and transforms lives and makes the blind see and the lame walk, and then something goes wrong in our life and we don't even contact him. We don't even think about him. We just think about what we can do. You know, maybe we should start looking at the struggles in our life a little bit differently. Maybe sometimes the struggles that are in our life are there so that through our faith, when God makes something good come out of it, people will see how powerfully he moves through his people. But I don't think he gets the opportunity to do that very often because as soon as bad things come upon us, we just give up. Have you ever been the person that, that starts to feel sorry for yourself because you're a Christian and something bad has happened to you? Has that ever been you? Have you ever been the one that's moped around and blamed God? I never understood that. I mean, we've all done it. But people will actually, things will start going wrong in their life and they'll stop going to church. They'll stop reading. They'll stop praying. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I'm supposed to be a child of God and look what's going on in my life. And then if God really cared about me, and oh, I just want to change their diaper right in front of them. It's so ridiculous. 
Seriously, when you get really sick, do you go, I'm never going to a doctor again. Those shots they gave me in kindergarten didn't work. Do you do that? No, listen. Sick people go to a doctor. Listen, people who are spiritually struggling, people who are in a difficult situation, should go to their creator. That's the way it should be. And every time we read past a section like this, we do just that. We read past it. We're blind to the power of God. See, we have become like the Jews. They had become spiritually blind. Here, these people who physically could not see recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and knew that their only hope was in him, and they go to him. The Jews, who are the religious elite of that time, are completely blind to who he is, despite the fact that he fulfilled all the prophecies that the Messiah was supposed to fulfill. They were completely blind to it. But I think that's kind of still the way it is, isn't it? Because often it's the religious people who lose sight of God. You ever notice that? Think about this for a second. Religious people are the ones that really lose sight of the power of God. Because what happens with us is, is our faith becomes routine. You know what I'm talking about? It becomes routine. To where, like, we don't go to church expecting God to speak to us anymore. We don't go to church expecting God to do something amazing in someone's life anymore. We go to church because we're supposed to. Has anybody ever found himself in that situation? Oh, tomorrow's Sunday. Well, we got to go to church. Let's see, how can we fit that in? You ever find yourself doing that? Not looking at anybody or anything. You know, well, I'll go to the 9 o'clock service and get it over with. Oh, I hate it when people say that. People literally say that to me. Some people say it joking to drive me crazy. But literally, I've had people come up to me and go, you got a 9 and 11 service? Is that, is that still the deal? And I'm like, well, you haven't been there in a while, have you? They're like, yeah, well... I guess I'd go to the 9 o'clock service, get it over with before, you know, everything starts happening at the lake. <laughs> I'm going, you realize I'm the pastor, right? Oh, yeah, 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 you do a good job. How long does it last? I'm like, hour and 15 minutes. Oh, 15 minutes. Yeah, I should still have time to get my boat out, get the gas. I mean, they're not even thinking about church anymore. They're not even thinking about the reason that they're going anymore. It's become an obligation to them. Prayer is an obligation. It becomes a routine and an obligation. How many people have found themselves praying and thinking about something totally different? Has that ever happened to anybody? Thank you for being honest. It's happened to me. I feel terrible when that happens. But that's because we're probably praying for a routine. Oh, it's 6 o'clock, and I always pray before I do this, or I always pray before I do that. So we start our prayer and start thinking about what we're going to do after the prayer session's over. We just totally... we. Everything becomes so routine and so obligatory that it just doesn't mean anything to us anymore, and we kind of lose sight of God. We actually become religious instead of faithful, and there's a big difference. You know what I mean? There's a huge difference. Just like you can see when it starts to happen in your life. It's like we've forgotten how powerful it is to have that close personal walk with Him. We've forgotten the amazing things He does through prayer or how the Word of God can speak to us. We just forget about those things. And you can see it start to happen in your life. You can really see it. It's when reading starts to be less and less of a priority in your life. You remember when you first become a believer and you're excited and you're hungry for the Word of God and you're trying to read it and trying to understand it? You can tell when the zeal's starting to go and you're thinking, oh man, it's 10 o'clock and I haven't read yet. Uh, I'll read a psalm, maybe one chapter, a couple verses. Pastor Chris says, at least read a verse a day, so I'm good. I'm covered. I'll just do a verse. You ever treated the Word of God like that? Just read it because, because you're supposed to. Or, yeah, I don't read the Bible anymore. I just do devotions every day. They only take five minutes. 
Listen, I have nothing against devotions. I write them. They don't replace the Word of God. And you shouldn't be doing them because of their convenience. Right? You see what I mean? It's just so easy for the religious to be just like the Jewish leaders of that time. Just see right past the power of God. And the things we should be doing to stay close to God or to seek God, we do them more you know, as a convenience rather than a conviction. We do them when they're convenient. Not because we're convicted to do those things, because we want to have a close personal walk with, you, with God. And here's the thing is when things start going wrong, when, when, when we become religious instead of faithful, and things start going wrong in our life, because see, we haven't had a sincere prayer in months. We haven't read the Word of God in months with a desire to actually hear from Him. Right? We're trying to squeeze it in and the important things in our life, and then things start to fall apart. Anybody ever been there? You know what that is? That's Jesus shaking things up. He's starting to flip over your tables a little bit and tell you, look at all these things that you put ahead of me. Look at all these things that have your attention more than I do. So I, I think it still happens this way. I still think that it's the religious, it's the, it's the people who should know better who get the most distracted. Right now, next we see, and we're going to finish with this, but next we see a group that hasn't lost their focus, and, and their actions prove it, and I love this. So think about this. He's just overturned the tables. He's just told them they made uh, the house that was supposed to be a house of prayer a den of thieves, right? And they're angry with him, and they're, who do you think you are? And all of a sudden, he heals the blind and the lame, which makes them even more angry because they're thinking, what's he doing now? What's with that's these parlor tricks trying to make people believe in him? And look what happens next. So this is like the perfect storm, Matthew 21, 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So, I mean, imagine how the, how, how the Jewish priest's day had gone. The guy they hated more than anybody comes in and flips over their system in the temple, calls them out, accuses them, does a miracle so they can't really do anything to him after he did that, right? And then little children come in saying, Hosanna to the son of David, praising him as the Messiah. This is the perfect storm of what you, they didn't want to happen. And it says, they became indignant, which means mad, and said to him, do you hear the, what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went to the city uh, and went off to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Now, this is hilarious because Jews actually felt that kids were insignificant. I mean, you saw it in the disciples, how they tried to hinder the kids from coming to Jesus. They got that because they were raised to think that kids were unimportant and insignificant. All right? They didn't mean anything until they were of age, which is like 20. So they meant nothing to them. They just pushed them aside. Right? But as we've seen in previous chapters, Jesus said, no, you've got that backwards. I don't know why you're pushing them aside. They should be examples to you because you need to be like them. Look at Matthew 18, 3, second part of that. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become what? Like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So these children come up and start, and start praising him. And they're angry, and they're like, why don't you stop them? Why are you allowing them to call you the Messiah? I mean, this is hilarious. They have not seen the hand of God already, and now they're saying, why are you letting them call you the Messiah? So he quotes Psalm 8 too. He says, out of the mouths of babes and infants will come my praise. Basically saying, 
what they're praising is true. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. Right? I mean, he's, he quotes that to them. And again, he's trying to get them to understand that they needed to go back to the beginning and have that childlike faith like the children of Israel had to have when they were brought out of Egypt. That faith that says, God, I don't know how to do this. You have to take control. He was telling them, you need to go back to that childlike faith, that perfect faith that's not driven by profit or religion or desire for power. Childlike faith, you know what it's driven by? Just a love for God and gratitude. Like when you first became a believer. How many people remember when you first became a believer? How many people can remember that far back? You know that fire you have? Was that, you know what I mean? That desire to know more, that passion that you have inside of you? I mean, I, I, you know, I was 22, but I didn't know anything about the Bible or God or anything. I just knew that I had come to faith in him. Someone had led me to faith, and I knew I was a believer, but I didn't know anything. And I wanted so bad just to get to know him because I was so thankful. I just wanted to know more about him. I wanted to know how to share him. And that was back when I feel like my faith was the most childlike. I just loved him. I didn't want anything from him. He just gave me eternal life. I wasn't praying for him to change my finances. I wasn't praying for him to fix my relationships. I wasn't praying for anything about my business at that time. I just wanted to know him because I was so thankful for what he did for me. And, and I, I, was, I was just excited. And I, when I look back, I understand childlike faith. I was 22 years old, but in my heart, I was like six because all I could see was it was like getting a glimpse of my father for the first time. It was, it was amazing. It was a powerful time. And he was saying, listen, maybe, maybe you need to think back to when you actually look to God for more than just profit, for more than just someone to get you out of trouble when you've gotten into trouble, for someone who gives you his grace and his mercy, not just a position of power that people can look up to you. Remember back when, like a child, you just loved him and were grateful, like the children of Israel when they were delivered? Remember that? This is what he told him. You know what? I, I kind of have to say the same thing to you. Do you remember that? When's the last time that you really just read or prayed, not because you wanted anything, just because you're redeemed? just because of what he's already done in your life, the promises you have, and just wanted to get closer to him and feel his presence more. When's the last time we were like that? You know, I know he's overturning our tables constantly, trying to get our attention, and we blow it off. But this is what he wants from us again, that mindset that just, that just loves him. So as I close, I want to encourage you. Listen, when things start falling apart in your life, don't look at it as happenstance. Don't try to find reasons and excuse it away. If things are radically changing in your life, it's probably God who's radically changing them. And that's probably because he wants to see a radical change in you. If you would just listen. He's trying to get your attention. Listen, there's something in you he needs to radically change. That's why things are falling apart. Listen, it, the easiest thing to do just surrender. God, what is it? What is it you need me to change, and I'll change it? What is it you need me to give up, and I'll give it up? What is it you need me to do, and I'll do it? But I hear you. I see you. I know what you're doing, and I want you to know I want you to be my focus again. I want that childlike faith to be what reigns in my heart again, and that's, that's one of the greatest things we can pull from this lesson 
Yeah, he, fl- he flipped the tables over in the temple. Yeah, the Jews were doing terrible, but you know what? He's still turning those tables over in our lives. And what are we doing about it? I'm going to go ahead and close it. I'm going to ask you, would you please bow your heads? If this is your first time here, we always like to give a brief invitation, and here's why. I remember being that, that 22-year-old kid sitting in a chair in a church that was completely foreign to me and trying to think of reasons to get the heck out of there. And I, I literally, that's what I was thinking. How can I get out of here? Because I felt this strange feeling in me that said, you need something. And it scared me a little bit. And when this guy had this invitation, I felt like he was speaking directly to me. Now, I don't want to do it the way he did it because he was trying to get everybody to come up front. I don't do that. But if God is speaking to you, I want to be able to pray for you. And if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. And I'm, I'm going to pray for you. I'm not going to bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down and email you and try to get you after church. I'm just going to pray for you. And if you're watching online, God knows your heart. But I just... I think so often we ignore the things Jesus is doing in our hearts and, and, until he has to turn over the tables to get our attention. When it, as soon as we hear that voice, if we would just answer, he'd reveal to us what he wants for us. And for those of you who are believers, listen, I'm going to pray for you that, that that fire you had when you first believed, that that reignites in you that you recognize all the tables in your life full of things that distract you and turn them over before Jesus gets the opportunity so that you can get focused on him again. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. And every week I say this, but I'm just amazed. I'm amazed that you could love someone like me. It shocks me, Lord, that knowing who I am and what I've done, knowing all my shortcomings, all my sin, all the things in my life that need to change. I'm just amazed that you can still love me and that you love me enough to give me eternal life free of charge. I never deserved it. I still don't. I don't understand that kind of grace, but I'm so thankful for it. And I just pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you or listening online that doesn't know you, I just pray, God, that whatever's holding them from you, just remove it. Let them see the love that took you to that cross. Let them surrender their lives to you. God, you made it so simple. If we can just believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, you promised we'd have it. God, I just pray they make that decision today. And if they do, that they reach out to us or reach out to a a good Christian friend or organization near them because it's really important that they find people to walk with them in this journey. And God, for those of us who are believers, it's so easy to forget all you've done for us. It's so easy to forget that you have to be the center of our lives. There's so many things out there to distract us and pull us away from loving you the way we should, from sharing you the way that we should. God, if you have to come into our lives and turn over all the tables full of distraction that are keeping us from you, I want you to do that so that we will finally see how far from you we've fallen. We just want to be close to you, effective for you. Like a child, we just want to feel that full dependence and love for you and serve you because we can. God, I thank you for all that you've done. We just pray, God, that as we leave here, you would keep us safe. 
that we would live what we profess and that people would see you moving and speaking through us. And if you don't return to take us home before we get the opportunity to come together again, we just pray that we would come here and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.